0: Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Well, this is a long time coming. A friend of almost 20 years, Bill Simmons, who I'm looking at on uh, Zoom right now. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I'll admit the fact that you did Marin before me, it hurts. But um, But we're here now. And I can accept it. What's funny is I didn't realize it was going to hurt.
1: And... You were like genuinely hurt. And I was like, I don't know. He he asked me to do it. You had asked me when we were at Grantland. I thought it was weird to be on an interview podcast on Grantland. And then it was like, we'll do it some other time. And then I did Marin and and it was like I, I was like Fredo betraying you with Johnny Ola. Like
0: you you were so upset at me. I, I called you and I go I go or I texted and so I just have to reframe history a little. I text you, I go, Marin, and you go ah, I knew you'd be hurt. Well,
1: we, because you reminded me when I did it, that I was like, oh shit, I should have told compliment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I'm so happy. I'm so happy uh, to do this. Dude, I would not, this is true. I would not have a podcast if it weren't for you. Uh, you gave me a podcast and- No, you'd have one. That's not true.
1: You would. You would have stumbled into one. I'm not taking credit for that.
0: You did give me, I mean, the truth of the matter is, man- I don't know how you knew, but it, like when I said to you, Hey, I'm thinking about this. You just immediately said, yeah, I got to do it with me, do it with Grantland. Like you're doing it. And um, I so thanks for that because this has added tremendous value to my life, just doing it. And, and I don't know that I would have had the impetus to do it. Like I had the idea, but I don't know if I would have really done it. If, if, if you weren't so fucking encouraging from the moment that I said it. So thanks for that.
1: It was a natural progression for you since you like, trapping people at a dinner table for like three to five hours, telling stories and diving into their personal
0: life. So this was really the next manifestation of that. That's totally fair. <laughs> Completely fair. Uh, no doubt about it. But I, I did want to ask you, how did you train yourself? And I'm going to, we're going to go back in time because we're going to do an episode of the moment. But how? Uh, I remember that conversation we had and a bunch of conversations we've had where you make decisions really quickly, decisions that other people might think about for a longer period of time. Did you train yourself to do that or have you always been that way? I don't know. I I mostly made bad decisions for the first 30 years of my
1: life. So I probably was always like that. But uh, yeah, my whole thing is, my whole thing is, uh, you know, I I trust my, my first instinct on something. And if my first instinct is overwhelmingly either yeah, why wouldn't we do that? Or, oh, that's a great idea. Or, oh, that person will be perfect. Then that's usually going to be the right instinct. And if I'm wrong about it, I'm wrong. But um, I'm usually not going to waver from how I feel in the first five to ten seconds or something. I think very rarely have I kind of talked myself into an idea that I didn't like right
0: away in some way. When, when you glibly say, like, oh, the first 30 years I made a lot of mistakes, I mean... Are you referring to like being a bartender after college? Like, what do you mean? I mean, it's a a funny thing to say. Obviously, you made a lot of really good decisions. Like uh, you met your wife and stuff like that. And you put your life in this direction. Did you like, like have to go through a lot of wrong directions before you were 30? Do you think? No, I think if I could go back and tell
1: myself one thing in my early twenties, it's just like, be patient, like just keep your head down and try to do good stuff. And it's going to work out. I think I wanted, you know, I, I, I had this calendar in my head that things had to happen by certain ages. And I remember when I was, like I was like 28 and I was thinking about 30 and I was like, I haven't done anything yet. Like not one thing. And I, and I was really like, uh, I just wanted everything to happen and, you know, I look back at like when I went to the to the Herald after I finished grad school and I just I wanted a column and I was like, I'm as good as these guys. I deserve a column. I should have a column right away. And it's like, that's so not the way to do that. And the boss that I am now would have hated that person. For if I had some twenty-four year old who thought they were as good as everyone I had and was brash and and by the way, wasn't as good as they thought they were. And then on top of it, had an attitude that things weren't happening fast enough. I would have not wanted that person to work for me. So, you know, I, I think a lot of it is maturity and, and trial trial by error. I smoked a lot of pot in my late 20s, and I think that helped. That probably mowed me down a little bit. And then um, you know, at some point just you get older and, and things kind of fall into place. And for some people it happens earlier, and I think I think for some people it happens later you just kind of figure everything out but even in even when I got to ESPN the first couple years um you know I I don't feel like I handled certain things that great there either the Kimmel show was the first time I, w- I went to Kimmel's show spent 18 months there and I just had a great experience and I was an awesome person to work with and I feel like I helped the show I made relationships that I, I kept after I left and um and I, I, by that point, I had really kind of figured out, all right, this is, I, I'm comfortable in who I think I am at this point and what I think I have to offer.
0: Right. And, and set the stage though, when you were before that, like when you were 24 and, and, and you were trying to get your own column, were you uh, nudgy to people? Were you trying to advance that agenda? How were you thinking about it? Or were you just trying to write, how were you trying to show them that they should notice you? I mean, it's probably half my fault and half just how newspapers were constructed
1: at the time because, um, you know, everyone, it was a pay your dues type of thing. And you had to put your time in and kind of go through the different, uh, checkpoints. And then after a while, good things happen to you. And they would always point to, um, I remember Tony Maserati was this guy who now is a radio guy in, in Boston. But back then he was covering the Red Sox when I got to the Herald and, they would always kind of point to him as like the success story. Like, you know, Tony mass, he covered high school sports for three years. He killed it, kept his head down and, you know, and it all paid off with, you know, now he's covering the Red Sox. And I was looking, I was like, well, that's cool. But that it took him five years. Like I'm ready now. I have things to say. Right. And I really did, you know, I was coming off in college. I had a really popular column. I was good at it. I had a, I had a really good sports column that was different. And now if I read the comms from back then, I'd want to hang myself, but, um, but it was really a creative, different kind of calm. And it was geared toward people that, uh, I was in college with. And I felt like, you know, I thought there was a space for me in Boston to try to reach younger people. Cause I felt like those people were, were being not being serviced correctly. It was a very old school institution of, uh, Two newspapers, one weekly, one monthly, one sports radio station. Most of the people that um, you know, had the positions of power, the big columnist positions, the big radio host positions, they were all mid-40s or older. And I just felt like nobody was talking about the things that me and my friends were talking about. Nobody was weaving pop culture into sports. And um, nobody just was having the conversations we were having. And I was convinced it was going to work. And I tried all these different ways to kind of get noticed and pitch them things. And um, eventually I started freelancing for the Boston Phoenix and writing a sports column for them and probably wrote maybe 15 and felt like I had real inroads on them. And then my editor got fired. They didn't want to do sports anymore. So it was like every time I felt like a door was opening and I could see the light and I started heading toward it, something bad would happen. The Herald sports editor who loved me, he got fired. It was just... At some point you just look and and I know Hollywood's the same way. And I know you and Dave have had your share of these stories too, where you, you start to look at it and you start to go, is it me or is this just like a run of terrible luck? Like what is, sure. is, is this me? Is this, am I, am I a rational confidence guy who's not good at this or is something, is there just larger
0: forces at work that are just telling me, don't do this. You're wasting your time. So a couple questions come to mind. One is, how much of that the thing you were just describing about knowing that you had this sort of uh, a sense of a column, a sense of a voice is the way I would say it, that wasn't really out there. How much of that voice was a calculated thing, meaning you were like, well, these disparate elements, the way I'm fusing pop culture, the things we talk about and sports isn't being done, so I'm going to fill that void. And how much of it was just like, I'm going to train myself to talk the way that I speak and I mean, to write the way that I speak and this thing starts coming out that's different. And then you recognized it. Like, was it, was it a conscious decision or did it just happen as you started writing? Oh, hundred percent authentic.
1: But I think, I think, um, you know, especially if you're a young writer and I think this goes for screenwriters and I think it goes for radio hosts and a couple other professions, your style ends up becoming a piece of different people that just had a huge influence on you. So for me, I've talked about this before, but like when I was growing up, we the Boston Globe had two incredible sports columnists. They had Ray Fitzgerald, they had Lee Motfield, who were probably two of the best 10 newspaper sports columnists ever. And we also had Bob Ryan and we had Will McDonough and Peter Gammons. And I just felt like those people were my friends and I learned all these different things from them. One was the way that Ray and Lee Monfield wrote columns, you know, they didn't just write the typical column. They, like that, somebody said about Ray that he he held a piece of paper up and kind of tilted it sideways, and that's how he saw the piece of paper. Right. Um, and that's how he wrote, and it would always, it wouldn't just be like the Red Sox lost. It would be, he would take some other angle that had to do with the Red Sox losing.
0: Right from the beginning, you, you had a voice that didn't sound like, and now I, I didn't read your college columns, but I did start reading you, and I didn't read you at AOL. I started reading you at Page Two. But you right away at Page Two, you did have a voice that didn't sound like the any of the old time. Yeah, but it, I, if you go back
1: and read the college comms, which are bad, it's basically the same voice. And it and it was those Boston Globe guys, and especially Gammons, and just um, I just felt like he was my friend. And, and Mike Lupko was another one yeah. that when I was, after my parents got divorced, when I was living in Connecticut for high school and I'd read the daily news, the shooting with the lip column, shooting from the lip, He do the, he would do the ramblings, which I turned into the ramblings. I basically borrowed that. Um, there were a couple other people over the years, but Goldman was, was honestly the biggest influence on my sports column out of anybody. And
0: William had Goldman, a couple, Bill Goldman, yes.
1: Yeah. He had a, he had a, I mean, he had a bunch of great books. The voice that he had in those books, I was just like, that That would work as a sports com. I'll, I'll do my version of that crossed with some other things. I don't think I knew that intentionally, but I just knew that I loved that voice and how he talked to me. But then the other piece was um, when he wrote that chapter in, in the book that he did with Lupka about being a fan and Bronco Nagurski and all of that, I was just like... Like, it didn't matter that he was a fan of the people that he was writing for. And in that in that book, he was the fan's perspective. It was as good as any sports writing. And that that's what really told me, like, if I do this, if I have a calm someday, being a fan of my teams has to be part of that calm. I'm not going to be the dude that is just in the press box pretending he doesn't care about the teams. I don't think that's authentic.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, that's the thing that one of the main things that I noticed, you know, you and I began to become friends in 2002. I mean, I looked it up. That's when you wrote the column about rounders and basketball. And I called you. And then shortly thereafter, we had dinner in Boston with Levine and you and your wife. And, um, and I remember reading all those columns then and you being determined not to lose the person who wanted to become a sports writer. Most guys who become a sports writer, they lose... Touch with the person. Uh, I was talking to Michael Bamberger about this the other day, who's a great writer, but who resolutely won't root for people, really. And it makes no sense to me that they had to do that. And so that was actually like a conscious thought you had, Bill, because some of these thoughts you had, like, and I've asked you this off the air, but I'm going to ask it to you now. You know, one of your big mantras back then was, "I'll never be the guy in the locker room. I don't want to be the guy close to the players." And you shifted in your view on that. I mean, you ended up hosting a show with the player and and you're friends with a lot of them how did your thinking evolve on that or how did you synthesize these ideas of this new experience you were having becoming a peer to these players with wanting to continue to identify from the fans point of view Yeah, so i mean it's
1: there's like multiple answers to it like when i had my old website that was the best thing that happened to me. And I didn't realize that at the time because I I did it for four solid years, which is crazy. Like Trump's been president for four solid years and it feels like a million, but four years is a long time and I was on my own. And I, you know, AOL sometimes would promote a column or something, but for the most part, I wasn't attached to a mothership, anything like that. How old were you then, Bill? So I'm in in my mid-late 20s at that point. And, um... And I have to figure out how to get people to come to me every day to read my stuff. And I had to come up with angles that were, you know, better than everybody. And one of the angles was basically like, I'm I'm the typical sports fan. I'm a Boston sports fan, which I was. I basically shticked up some of the stuff that was in me anyway, but then just tried to write from that perspective because I was like, this will stand out. And then try to take a bunch of different angles and just be really creative and you know, like the Rounders column is a good example. And I got to page two, um, I really tried to put some thought. I had five weeks off between when they hired me at ESPN. At that point, I had done a couple pieces for them, and they were doing really well. And that was one of the reasons they hired me. And I had five weeks off for the first time in four years, and and I had to figure out how do I be a national columnist because at the time, all columnists were local, like all of them. Everybody wrote for their own, you know. You had your guys in New York, and you have, if you're just in New York writing about New York people mostly and national stuff, you, everyone is getting what you're talking about at all times, right? Everyone in New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, you can make a reference. Right. Let's say it's 2001, you can make a throwaway reference to like Sparky Lyle, and everyone reading me will get that. Sure. If you're if you're a national columnist and I think Lupica had a lot of trouble figuring this out when he was at the National and if you look back at the National, the only guy that really gained a little bit of headway was Norman Chad because he was making fun of TV announcers.
0: And DeF- to Frank uh, DeFord, DeFord's stuff was amazing and
1: Right, but he was he was more editor than anything. I'm just saying like being a national columnist is hard because you don't really belong to anybody. So I took that 5 weeks off and really thought about how can I connect to everybody in the country while I'm writing about sports? Like, how do I become a national columnist that feels local to each whatever? And one of the ways was pop culture. Another way was trying to be super creative with angles. So like that rounders thing, the rounders thing is a basic NBA awards column, right? That's like, we had been reading those for 30 years where some like, here's my MVP, here's my rookie of the year, here's my coach of the year. And it was all written the same way in the same style. And I always looked at it and I was like, well, this it seems like that's the entryway to do something way more fun. So I would hand out the movie quotes as awards and kind of dive into the movie as well as the other stuff. So I, I would say by 02, like by the time you got to know me, a, a lot of it more was was purposeful for like what I thought could actually work. Because at that point I had no roadmap. How is somebody going to become... Gonna become a successful national columnist. The only person who was doing it was Riley. Riley was writing 800 words once a week. That wasn't somebody like I could really study. Nobody was able to do it. I was writing three days a week, 52 weeks a year. I didn't have anybody to be like, oh, I'll do it like that guy.
0: I mean, Riley had that back page, you know, so he had a specific at a time when people listening to this can't even remember what SI was and what his real estate was. It was um, a very particular Thing, but just to answer, just just to j- to ask you that, you know question again, which was this idea that you were not going to become friends with them. What do you? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't
1: finish that answer. I'm sorry. Um, well, so that that was the person, that was the quote unquote character that I created for that decade, where I was like, this guy is going to be from this perspective, and what I learned, you know, by the time I got to the end of 2009, and I took that, I think, as far as it could go, and. Especially when I did my basketball book, I really tried to do it with some distance. Yes, and then I think as I hit the the two thousand tens, I I just became more. I you know at that point I I started to know some people. I I would have a couple GMs reach out. I I became friendly with people and teams, and I realized like there was so much I didn't know. And I was actually doing myself a disservice if I wanted to get better as a writer and a thinker about all this stuff. I needed to know more people and I needed to actually kind of flip that narrative. So it's funny that the, I, I probably still get the, he never went in the locker room thing. I would say in the last decade, I probably spent time with more famous athletes and more people in the business than just about anybody. And I learned a lot. And it, and it really, really did help my writing because I, I do feel like... Um, in 11 and 12 and 13 and 14, like having that reservoir of people. And then especially the year, the first year I was on countdown when I was with magic and Jalen and Wilbon, yeah. I wrote some of the best NBA pieces I ever wrote that year, because I was, th- I, w- I was just using, especially magic as like this fountain of, of information. And he, the guy had played with everybody. He had been through every situation and I wrote some of my favorite pieces that year because I was able to ask him stuff and get his perspective on things. So I, I liked the way it worked out. I wish I had made that turn a little bit sooner and tried to spend more time with people before really. Oh, that's interesting.
0: You wish you had made that change quicker, even though you're don't, don't you think part of your bond with the fans was this idea that you were one of us at a certain point that you were, you know, you did this great. Um, it's an amazing, you know, I, uh, for me, you're the best, I mean, I've said this to a lot of people, you're the best sports writer of our, of our age, and the older sports writers can't stand it a lot of the time. You know, I'm friends with a bunch of them, and it, it drives them crazy in a way, because I think you sort of av- were an avowed, um, I'm not going to be like you old dudes. I'm going to do this a different, a different way. Like you, you, so I would think it would have been scary for you to make that change, but to you, it just felt like a natural evolution. It didn't feel scary. Yeah,
1: I think I, if I could do it over again, I mean, both of us, I'm sure, would do a million things over again. I probably would have tried to do it sooner, like oh six, oh seven, because I was being offered a lot of opportunities at that point because my column was was so big by like oh four yes. that I think I could have really taken advantage of some cool things. And I did occasionally, like you know, even in oh two, I spent the day two days with the inside the NBA guys to kind of figure out that show. And I I look back now and. I really wish I had started doing that sooner because, um, I think it was a good evolution. I, I, I personally feel like I was able to keep that sports fan head on me as I got to know some of these people and tried to, you know, learn different things about, um, especially basketball. I think basketball probably helped the most. It was for me, the evolution as a basketball thinker to talk to as many people as possible some of the pods i've done even like you know even now when i got in my 40s and i'm doing i did the six Durant podcast that's yes those are um those are some of my favorite things i've ever done because at that point athletes didn't talk like that we're used to you know the the uh the espn interview on sunday nights where the guy doesn't really say anything for seven minutes and durant was just like i don't care everything's on the table i was like this is incredible
0: well, I'm wondering, when you did you want to become – so when you talk about wanting your own column and all that stuff, I've been – like, you know, Bill, you're the most successful person who's been a sports writer, like, other than maybe there's one or two TV stars. But, and uh, you know, in terms of your influence and scope and sort of the what you've been able to build – and I was thinking about this today because, you know, I put out a thing and I was like, hey, I'm talking to Simmons if anyone has anything on Twitter. And what came apparent to me in the responses is, is you're, you've become uh, – you've become like uh, an industry unto yourself. People hardly at times, you're so important to them. They think of you like a network, like ESPN, like not, I'm sure you feel it sometimes, like not like a human being in a way, you know? And uh, so part of it, like, was your ambition, like when you were 28 or 29 and you were trying to break through and you were, you know, getting your column, did you see this business part of this or did, did or was it just that you saw an open lane and you hit the lane and then you realized, well, if I hit the lane and I juke, now I can make a reversal and suddenly you scoring 80, like how conscious was what you were able to build and where you took this to the fact that now, you know, you're one of the biggest names. That's the thing about you and Durant, right? If, if you step back, you're in many ways as famous as Durant. So no way, stop it, dude. Come on. I mean, you are, You are, uh, I mean, maybe not in, in the far reaches of the world, but in, in sports fans in America, you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm asking you? How conscious was this journey to becoming, um, you know, your own sort of brand and network in a sense? Well,
1: for my goal until I was at least 31 was, can I get a job with benefits? Right. Um. (laughs) Right. Right. And yeah. can I do what I like to do for a living and get paid enough for it so that on Saturdays, I could take
0: my girlfriend out to dinner? Like that, honestly, That by the time I was 30. No, dude, yeah, that's that is what I was looking this is what for. I was thinking about today, right? This is what I was thinking about today. was like, I see the way people grapple with you in their heads. And it's like, I really want to tell this part of the story, which is you were wanting to be a sports writer living the Oscar Madison life, but better, where you could have like you say, uh, some money in your pocket, um, an outlet for your, this thing you wanted to talk about the ability to go to games and the ability to like raise a family basically. Right. Yeah. I
1: mean, initially I remember when I, I, I think combined everything probably in 2000, cause I was doing some freelance stuff. I think I was able to get to like 40,000, but I didn't have benefits. And, right. um, I remember, and at that point I was dating my future wife. And I remember like we used to go to this place in uh, Charlestown called R. Wesley's Bistro. It was this incredible chef who, you know, nowadays in the internet era, um, this guy would be, have been like an eater, like the best 18 restaurants in Boston. Like he would have just been there every time. But it was like a little secret. And, you know, it cost like 160, 180 bucks. And we would go there, you know, every three weeks or every four weeks, whatever. And it was like kind of special. You know, I was like, wow, I'm so psyched I can afford this Saturday dinner. <laughs> so then you know getting the ESPN and and getting it to the point where um, I was like, oh now now we have enough money to actually I can get in, I can realistically get engaged um, and then going to Jimmy's show, moving to LA and then you know at some point I, I think once I realized I had enough money to at least be able to you know go on a trip once a year or something, um, I really just wanted to have the biggest column and I, I was super competitive about it. Uh, I felt like I was in an awesome spot at ESPN. I thought the internet was moving toward me and that was the reason I ended up ultimately leaving Kimmel because when when I joined Kimmel, I felt like the internet, it was still kind of fluky. You know, it, I, it didn't have any credibility. Even, yeah, I've told this story about my dad. Like he would tell people, I wrote a column on, on the internet and people would be like, what's, really, does he get paid for that? And it just, it, they, it seemed insecure. We had the, the 2001, the the little crash of all the, so who the fuck knew? And I got offered a job to write for Jimmy, who I really respected. I was pretty burned out. I was like, this is great. I can go into, now I have a roadmap. I can do TV. and may, Maybe I'll I'll have a better career there. And I'm not in sports writing. And I realized pretty quickly, I was like, man, I really, kind of walked away from something powerful. Like the internet was moving into my favor. So I ended up going back and- But you kept oh,
0: doing the, didn't you keep doing the column for most of the time you were at gym? I did,
1: but it was like once every two weeks and I wasn't doing a good job at it. I didn't feel great about it. I I was, I didn't have enough time to follow sports was the real problem. And and at the level that made, would have made the column good. So when I went back in 04 and I went back in April- And I really was like, I am throwing myself into this. I I think everything is ready for, you know, a couple people to win really big with a column. And I wanted to be one of them. And then that was when the Red Sox, they they took off that year and,
0: you know, and all of a sudden I was in the middle of it and I was leading the ESPN.com. Bill, was it just you then, or did you have an intern by then? Uh, Was that when you started with the intern thing, like in 2004? (laughs)
1: Yeah. That was when, when I came back, they gave me like a little sports guy world site and we were going to, we were doing some fun stuff with it. I want to do like an American idol type parody of an intern contest that I probably wouldn't do again if I had to do it
0: over again. But, uh, but it was great. No, the intern thing was great. No, it was great. Okay. Good. I know everyone. I think that that was a super fun thing. I remember all sorts of people asking me, like, if they like young people, I knew like, can you get me the gig or put me in a get get me a shot for it or, or whatever the thing is. Um, Yeah, and there was was less places like that, you know? Of course.
1: I just feel like ESPN.com really, really mattered in 2004 because it's not like it is now. Now you have so many different things grabbing people's attention.
0: Around then, you started becoming a little bit famous, like not famous in a huge way yet, but like, you know, you were known, people cared about what you were doing, the decision to go to Camel mattered. How did you start dealing with that? At that time, did you see for yourself, okay, I can turn this into something much bigger? Did you start to have the idea yet of your own site? Or had they done things a different way? Like a hedge fund guy, Dave and I know, one of these hedge fund billionaires often tells this story that he was, he made like a, a billion dollars for the hedge fund that he worked for when he was 24. And he went to them, and he said, "Like, I think I should get five hundred thousand dollars bonus." And they gave him four fifty. And he was like, "If they would have given me five hundred, I would have felt valued, and I would have stayed." But they gave me four fifty, and I was like, "Fuck yourselves!" And I left and started my own fund, and I became a multi-billionaire. And I might have. Re- He's like, "I think I would have stayed if they would have just done the right thing." Like, yeah, that's funny. And and so, yeah. Did, and, and there are certain similarities. Like the, in, in in a way, like is there a scenario where this all could have just gone, and you would have been a columnist, or did you start to have a hunger to have a bigger platform?
1: I definitely, uh, like 04 range. I really wanted to write scripts, and I had no idea like how <laughs> how uh, the odds were against you with that stuff. And one of the reasons I came back was to write a baseball movie for them about uh the year the winter when the Red Sox chased. Alex Rodriguez, and we were doing. That was when ESPN was doing those movies. So when I came back, I was going to do my column. They were going to create this little space for me, the Sports Guys World space. Because one of the things I really wanted was turf on the main page. Um, I was smart about that. Like I, I, I was like, no matter, put in my contract. I want this. That if when people go to the main page, I'm there because I knew that would protect me. Who knew if the editors would change or whatever? I didn't. They had the power to kind of make me less or more scene depending on the day and I,
0: I just wanted to take that out and eliminate that and then the movie script wait i want to go slowly here because this is important for people who listen so talk through how you you were only talking to yourself just you and your wife did you have advisors in your life then or was it just you mostly figuring this shit out no it was just me yeah. and and you would said you'd learned some lessons from when you were younger and you were like t- making demands so how do you think you framed something like that when they wanted you back to say Hey, I think I should be on the front page. Like, do you remember how you started having those conversations? And did you feel, um, were you ever squeamish about asking for stuff or, or, or were you somehow just like, fuck it. If I don't ask, I'm not getting.
1: No, I remember, um, well, you, there's one other piece of this story is like from, from day one, John Walsh and John Skipper just did right by me. And I became friends with both of them. And especially Walsh became like a godfather to me. and you know, they, both of them, Skipper did, you tell that story about the hedge fund guy. So I have the opposite version of that story. I had just signed a new contract with them in, in the summer of 02. And like maybe two months later, Kimmel started trying to get me to be on his late night show as one of the writers and talking to me and lobbying me. And I just signed this new contract. And that was the first like real contract I had. Like, I think it was like, $125,000 125000 dollars a year or something with benefits. I was like, oh my God. I can't like I remember my dad's reaction, like he just couldn't believe it.
0: He <laughs> <Right. laughs> like,
1: was like, You're making a hundred, they're gonna pay you hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. He just couldn't
0: like he, he couldn't fathom it. Um and I Of course. And you know so, you could live in an apartment in LA that would be nice and all that stuff or whatever.
1: Yeah. Well, I ended up staying in the same apartment, but um but um but Jimmy tried to recruit me. And I I remember I did this sales thing with Skipper in Boston and then I talked to him after and there was a way to do it because ABC and ESPN were both owned by Disney. So Kimmel played the Disney card and really why you could still write for them, work for me, everybody wins. And I met with Skipper and at that point I was the biggest star they had on the website. And, you know, a lot of what they were doing was geared around me. I was writing three days a week. They led with me every time. And he let me do it. And he was like, you know, he's like, I really want you to do this. It seems like you're fired up. And uh, and I know you'll still be writing for us. But, you know, I I told them it's it's cool with me. I'm going to let you do it. And that was that was the opposite of the story you just told, because after he did that, I was in on Skipper forever after that, although it turned out not to be forever, at least for another 14 years.
0: Well, you were uh, on it for a long time. I mean, for a long time afterwards, and that, and I, I do want to talk about this. Like that, that idea that you had a hundred thousand dollars or one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. You really did feel like a success then, right? Like you felt like, okay, I've done it now. I'm a, I'm a columnist. Then it matters. It's
1: amazing. I, I couldn't believe it. And, and you know, you start thinking like, oh man, maybe I could save up and get a, get maybe get a small house, and you know you. It was just like options I just didn't have 18 months earlier. So then when I went back to ESPN, um, I still felt like I had already outkicked my coverage just in general. But I did know I wanted to do a couple of things. And I I did feel like my column had a shelf life. And even if you go back and you check the archives, I have multiple jokes in there. Like if I'm still writing this column in 10 years, shoot me and all that kind of stuff. Because I felt like, what's next? I know I'm not going to be able to write this column when I'm 50. I got to figure it out. And I really want to do scripts. And um, it wasn't until about 06 that I... And and by that time, I'm in my mid-30s. I had another contract coming up. Um, I think I delivered on the last contract. There's no question. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and, And I was trying to figure out what to do. And the thing I really wanted to do that time was get more involved with some of their shows. And get more involved creatively with what they were doing. And Skipper and I, was another thing. We went to the Rose bowl together. We were at his hotel after standing in the lobby for like an hour, just talking about what, you know, what I wanted Yahoo at that point was kind of a factor. So I had a competitor, which I, I came to realize was probably a good thing. And I was just like, I really want to get involved with some of the stuff you're doing. Like, I don't want to just be a writer and that, Two months later, he was like, that's great, blah, blah, blah. And then two months later was when I had the idea for 30 for 30. And I sent them the email. I spelled it all out. It wasn't exactly what 30 for 30 became, but it was a lot of it, and it was the title. And that was when uh, they were like, hey, you got you should develop this. And that was I just started to get to know Connor in a real way. And that was when uh, I forwarded him their reaction to my email. And I was like, what do you think of this? And – Initially, that the initial email was like, "We'll do thirty documentaries about thirty years." ESPN. We'll even get like four real filmmakers to do four of them. We'll do the rest. Right. And and Connor read the email and he was like, "We can get thirty filmmakers to do this." I'm like, "Really?" I had no idea how anything worked. And then me and him just developed it for the next ten months, and everybody left us alone, and nobody thought it was going to happen. Connor but Shell but at that, ESPN. So- yeah, so that was when. Yeah, that was when I started to realize, like, oh, shit. I I started to look at ESPN, like, here's this awesome company that has a ton of money, and they want to do cool stuff, and they just don't have a lot of creative people. I wonder if I I can have an impact that way, too. And it was really that simple. That was it.
0: That, like, you thought, well, I can make, you know, if I have an idea for shows, I should be able to make shows also, as opposed to saying, like, the traditional route would be, Sports writer who wants to do more than that just becomes a talking head on sports shows. But somehow you did some of that, but that wasn't like where you were. Uh,
1: no, I didn't do any of that. I I stayed away from that until right around when my book was coming out. Ride Home had been trying to get me to do PTI forever, and I just wouldn't do it. And then, uh, And then I finally ended up doing it. I did four shows. I'm sure they're terrible looking back. I felt like, okay, but it was one of those things where by the fourth day, I started to go, oh, I could probably do this. The other thing that happened in 07 was I started my podcast and I was able to get all of the reps that I really needed, all the talking reps. And that enabled me within five years to go on TV for Countdown in like a, a real way because... I, I you know I put in my 10,000 hours and I, now I've put in probably my 70,000 hours but um so 07 was like the that was the year when everything changed cuz I still had the column I started working on my basketball book and I knew I was going to throw myself in that 30 for 30 started going and then uh the podcast
0: and you had already had the best selling you'd already written the one best selling book
1: Yeah but that was that was like a collection of columns this one I wanted this to be like I, I was really worried about not being able to remember all my NBA opinions once I turned 40, you know, because I, I, I remember when my dad turned like 50 and then he'd be like, what game was that? What game were we at? Was that game five? Or, and I'd be like, how do you not remember that? And my brain was so fresh. And now I'm in the same stage my dad's at. I can barely No, remember. I know. Like I
0: was at the game where LJ hit the four-pointer, but I actually can't tell you. I know you know, but I can't tell you what the situation in the game was. Like, I don't remember where that right. was in the playoff series. I just remember going crazy and him hitting it and making the L, but I can no longer tell you what that was, which is what happens when you get to be 52 well, years
1: old. Somebody asked me yesterday if I went to MJ's 63-point game, and I honestly didn't know. I, I, it's 50-50 that I'm there. I don't, I don't remember. I went to so many great—
0: You must have been at the game.
1: It was a weekend game, but... Playoffs? You must have been there. It was a weekend game. I was going to high school. My parents were divorced. I was going to high school in Connecticut, so I was only with my dad every other weekend. And I, I was able to drive by that point. So it, I just don't remember.
0: I remember most of the ones. But but anyway... Um, the double nickel game, I remember completely. I was there, and I remember everything about it. But because um, oh, that was a different... Th- yeah, that was a very special night, and uh, I, I really um we'll never forget it. Okay, I I want to go back a little bit. Uh cuz there are a couple of things you haven't really talked about that much. W- one of them is like what kind of a kid were you, dude? Were you a decent student in like high school? Did any teachers know you were going to be successful? Like was there evidence that you were destined for any of this shit when you were 16 or 15?
1: Yeah, I think I I was probably like one of those nba players who was talented but the coaches Yep. didn't know if they were going to make it or not. Me too. You know. That was
0: me for sure. hundred percent. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, my parents got divorced when I was 10 and I took it, I it, it definitely took it hard and I was an only child to begin with. And, you know, I, I, I probably hit all the prototypical checkpoint things of the only child divorced, only child who uses humor as a, as a self-defense mechanism. Um, but I, I, I always wrote, I read everything and, and I was writing, like I was writing short stories when I was ten. I remember when I was in like f- fourth or fifth grade, maybe fourth grade. I wrote this story about this kid who was getting abused and escaped from his house, and it and he got on this motor scooter. It's called the Run. It's actually it's actually pretty good. But he takes his he's tired of his dad beating him up and. He decides to escape with his dog. He has a moped and he and he has this uncle that he's gonna go see. And it's this whole short story. And my teachers were alarmed. They they actually like uh That's all awesome. they brought my parents in. They thought I was like being abused. If you've ever met my dad, it's I mean, you've probably heard him on a podcast. It's he's it's so they're like, uh yeah, you know, we're concerned. <laughs> we read the story. Uh so I I was I was really writing like crazy short stories, but I didn't really I didn't really know that I could potentially do it until probably the end of eighth grade. And that was when I was like, this is the one thing I'm probably good at.
0: You, know, you knew started- by the end of eighth grade. And did you have a big, like were, a lot of writers are outsiders. You had the divorce experience, but you, you, it does seem like you've, so I want to ask, did you always have a close-knit group of friends? Because it's obvious you had a close-knit group of friends in college and after college, but did you have a really close-knit group of friends? Because you don't seem as much like you are an outsider as most or many writers do yeah that's probably just a nerd i mean i I had my high school friends I'm still all friends
1: with we were we were all texting today actually but I also went to an all boys school for high school and uh you know i i i think we were all kind of bonded by the situation you know you go to an all boys school the 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 boys are so fucking tight you know you're just it's just a different level and uh you know i i, I think um I, I was the sports obsessed nerd you probably thought I was. There was not a lot of girlfriends to be seen back then. It wasn't really till college that uh, the girls started to happen
0: in, in college it started mattering that you knew the things that you knew and that you could put words together in the way that you did, but not before that.
1: No I, I, I think probably eighth grade I went to I, after when I finally went to live with my mom, I went to this really hard prep school and and everybody was just so intense and, and smart you know, and all sons and daughters of the, you know, like successful people. And they, they were all in these tracks to go to Andover or Exeter or wherever else. And I, I was coming from like, you know, Brookline public schools. <laughs> I'm like, Yes. I, I, my head was spinning and, uh, I had this teacher that I loved who was also my basketball coach. And we had this final exam that, uh, I think it was, it was, it was called the Pearl and it was 40 points out of a hundred on your final English exam. And nobody had ever gotten a 39 on the, on the, and it was like a personal essay based on something from a book. So I ended up, I got a 39 and it was the first one. And, and, and he, he decided to read the Pearl to the whole class. Cause he was like, this is the first 39 I've ever given in 20 something years, whatever it was. So, I wanted to read it, and, and uh, he read the whole thing. And at that point, it was the first time it was like, wow, they, like I'm actually, I can hang with these kids. And that was, that was probably a, a transformative moment for me.
0: Wow, yeah, that must've been an amazing moment to hear the thing read out loud and know that, and did the other kids sort of re- react to it in, in some way where you knew that the piece had landed on them?
1: Yeah, it was, it was, well, cause I mean, ironically, it wasn't an uplifting story. It was about how my grandmother died of cancer. And so at the end of it, it was just like silence. And that was, that was when I was like, oh, it was the first time I'd ever seen um, anything I'd written actually have an effect on people. Cause at that point, how would, you wouldn't even know, like, how would you even feel it? So that was the first time I was like, oh man, all right, this is something's here. And then, you know, when I went to college, our paper used to come out on Fridays. And I remember like, I would go to get lunch at, uh at where, you know, the, where we would, you know, that main hall Hogan was ours, the main hall that has like food and your mailbox, all that shit. And the newspapers would be out there and I, I would s- sit down have a sandwich. And sometimes I would look over and I would see like multiple people just reading my column. I'd be like, ah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, you know, that's awesome. And, and that's an incredible, like, like, that's
0: an incredible feeling. Yeah. It's an incredible feeling. Yeah. It's way it, it sounds vain, but it's not because if you
1: slave over something and you put time in it, you know, then you send it out to the world. There's still this piece of you, no matter how successful you get that it's kind of a rush when you see somebody reading it. I remember when my basketball book came out, um, I just seeing in the bookstore and seeing like a whole thing for it or seeing somebody pick it up. I still get excited when I see it now. My son gets really excited now. If we're in a, Bookstore, and he's like, "Dad, two copies," and he's like holding it, and showing me, and I'm thinking, like, "Yeah, that was three years of my life," but yeah, if you if you don't get that feeling, your entire life, it's probably not the profession for you.
0: No, man. When I, I mean, if I'm on an airplane and I'm walking up the aisles and I see people watching billions, it freaks me. It's still like. You yeah, never, I agree with you. you can't get, I don't get tired of that at all. That's why like, you know, every day when someone asks me a stupid rounders two question, I give them shit back. But obviously the fact that they give a fuck all these years later matters a lot to me. So I understand why it would. But I have to ask you, don't you miss the writing? I got to like, like you are, I do think you are the best sports writer in the world. And you know, you're a sports writer who hung it up like Barry Sanders. Like you just hung it up while you were still the best. And you may say you didn't really hang it up, but you hung it up. So, why? Yeah, it
1: feel it feels hung up. Because why did you hang it up, dude? Because I think, uh, you know, I was doing a lot of different things, but your mind just—I I think to do a column like that correctly, it has to be the most important thing you're doing, or at least in the top two. And. I hit a point, especially when I started going on countdown, that was really the beginning of the end because, you know, in 2012 and 13 and 14, um, I, I think I had five jobs and it, it wasn't sustainable and it, and it certainly wasn't cause I got burned out. But, um, but you start, you, I never wanted to be the person who's like, I'm handing in a column because it's due you know, and it's like, I I get why people have to be like that if they don't have another option. But for me, it was like, I can put my creativity this way, this way, this way, and this way. And it's just more interesting at this, whatever point I'm at in my life than, um, than trying to just write the same column I've been writing for 16, 17 years. It it just didn't
0: make sense to me. I love the growth of that. But my question is more like, you know, that feeling you strap in, you put the headphones on, you're figuring something out that you think you have thoughts on, you start. And by the end of the page, or the end of the, in your case, 3,500 words, you come to realize, oh, there's all this stuff I didn't know that I knew that I just wrote about. I have like a new understanding of the world. And then you put it out in the world and those people respond and react to it. Do you never, um, miss that particular part of this because I do notice you do it on the book of basketball podcast, which by the way, put ours up at some point, but you do, I do notice that with the book of basketball stuff, you care about that stuff that you wrote.
1: Yeah. I just feel like I I never wanted to do it unless I was a hundred percent in, in every direction. And I think when, look, everybody's different as a writer I was always one of those people. I spent a lot of time on my pieces. Like maybe it didn't seem that way if you read it, but, um, it, you know, especially like, uh, I remember the two years I was doing countdown and I, I got this weird mental block where I had my Friday calm due. And for some reason I couldn't start it earlier than Thursday. I just couldn't. And I, I couldn't figure it out. I probably should have gone to see a psychiatrist. It would have been so easy to be like, Oh, I'm doing my NFL picks. Call I'll write half on Tuesday, a third on Wednesday. I'll finish on Thursday, and I my brain just didn't work that way. And I it, it, it had always been that way ever since I was a kid. Where, um, you know, if I had a paper due, I was the classic. I'll write it on Thursday night. The papers due Friday. I, it's just who I am, and I couldn't teach myself how to do that with writing. And I would do these things where I there was a few times when I was doing countdown where I would wake up at five in the morning. I would write my entire NFL picks and the people at Grantland will back me up because they would get these 6,000 word columns from me at 11 morning Pacific time. And then they would do the edits. Uh, I would quickly shower. I'd grab something to eat. Um, go back. We'd finish. We'd put the column up at like 4 45 PM East coast time. Yes. I'd put a suit on and go to countdown and do countdown. I would go on TV and I had just been going for fifty. It was actually kind of da- it was kind of dangerous. I like I really feel like I look back, I could have said something crazy on a show or no, something. You were
0: young, you were also young enough and the adrenaline and like that moment when a career really is into, into place, keeps you I don't know. rocking. I do what? think I would just say I, I think during this quarantine you should bring out the mailbag for the quarantine. You should do two quarantine mailbags because we are all home and we need that. We need the entertainment of two quick I don't know four thousand word mailbags. Here's the problem.
1: Believe me, I my dad my dad is the one that's killed me the most on this because he he just can't believe I stopped. Um, I I think it's like golf. I don't. I personally can't just kind of jump back into it. it. It's to me, it's like I got to be doing it, doing it. Like the the best stretch I had from a writing standpoint. Um, I mean, I probably had years that I thought I was like, ah, I really felt like comfortable that year like I really feel like I knew what I was doing that year it was easy that year 09 was I think the best year I had and and the, the second best year was probably the first year of Grantland and it was for the same reason I was just I was writing a ton and it, it's like golf if I play golf five days a week I'm gonna be better at golf if I'm playing one day a week, I'm not going to be as good as golf. If I'm playing once a month, I'm going to fucking suck. And that's and, true.
0: But, but that's just, just say, who I am as, as a to, writer. As you might say to Katie, just get out of your head, man, and do it. Get out of your head. Do
1: it. I feel like I I said basically from a writing standpoint, just about everything I'd ever want to say. I remember when I came after my show got canceled. Like yes, probably the 2017. I I was trying to write my column again, and I missed it, and I kind of needed it at that point because I was bummed out, and um. And it took a couple months for it to come back. And then I remember I did a MVP column in April and I felt like, I was like, oh, I got it back. Like I like that actually was pretty easy. That, which I always judged as like, if I turn the computer on, I have a blank document and I have an idea of what I want to do and a plan of attack. And then my fingers are moving and things are coming out. And then I'm making jokes that I didn't think of before I started writing, but as that's what I'm saying, yes. Think. The joke comes in or the, or the tangent. And I felt like it was back that spring where I was like, "Oh, so I can I can get it back, but I had to put time into it. I just I don't have the time anymore to to put in that way. And I also I'm not sure, honestly, not sure if a sports column just has that same kind of weight anymore in the in the Twitter era and the and the quick take era and things like that. I don't. Do people want to
0: read a seven thousand word mailbag on their on their phone? I would say no. From you, they do. Uh, from you, they do. Yes, the answer is, uh, I, I, I hear everything you're saying. I have a lot of psychological answers for it, but I would just say, yeah, from you, they do. Uh, just a, I have a few more things before I'm going to let you go. Do you think of yourself still as a writer or do you think of yourself as a business person? No.
1: Well, how, how long are we going? We, you, you skipped over a couple of years. I thought you were really going for this. Now, now you're I, like I sending am. me out the door.
0: I'm not sending you out the door. Dude, I got a lot of questions. Let's. All right, we're hanging in. I'll do it. I just didn't want to take up too much of your time. Believe me, I blocked off uh, 95 minutes for this, but I I didn't want to. So did I. I, I, You had me for another 35. False alarm that it was toward the end. Um, Good. I really have all the time. So, I mean, we're both on fucking quarantine isolation, dude. Um, Yeah, it's true. So, all right. Stop for, for one second. Do you think of yourself more as a businessman or a writer? Like if someone said, what do you do? and you're like come on I'm Go Bill ahead. Simmons you know what I do but but really are you a writer or are you a business person or are you a podcast host like how do you at your core right now how do you think of yourself
1: i i think by around 09 i really started thinking i wanted to be somebody that was always up to a couple different things at least and i've tried to keep that so i don't think i'm i don't think i'm necessarily one thing now you know i I I was able to do and try a whole bunch of things. Some work, some didn't over the years, but I think ultimately, um, I think the podcast has probably replaced the calm for me in a lot of ways because I'm still able to get out a lot of my thoughts about things. Maybe I'm not crafting them, but, um, some of the creativity that goes into a pod and interviewing people, I really tried to make my podcast better the last three years. And I, I think that was one thing when, um, you know, especially at ESPN, the last couple of years with the pod, I, it was just one of the things I was doing. It was always the least important thing. I still loved it, but um, I think I could have gotten a lot more creative with it. So I think the last three years, and especially when the rewatchables, book of basketball, and things like that, um, and then the other thing is just—and this started at Grantland—you um, know, a lot of times I, I'm I'm still involved in the ideas process and coming up with stuff and trying to find new talent and things like that. So that's kind of its own thing. So I, I'm kind of all over the place. I don't I don't
0: think there's any way to describe it. And yeah, that, that makes sense to me because you are a, like a multi-hyphenate. When you've had certain of these things, I've thought about a lot about the way that you've dealt with failure and rejection as this has all gone on, because on the one hand, you've had this meteoric rise. On the other hand, you've had setbacks, you've had public embarrassments, you've you know, now the, the ESPN firing sort of looks absurd. Um, I wrote about it at the time. I'm very proud I was one of the only people because I had no fear of any reprisals. I wrote a piece <laughs> about it um, and uh, about how wrong it was for them to fire you. But I'm wondering how you trained yourself to deal with situations like that because that was your whole livelihood in a way stripped out from underneath you when you were, I was thinking about two things. I was thinking about picking the battles that you decide to join and the battles you don't. And I was thinking about, I remember listening and reading when you were not allowed to interview Obama. And I remember you didn't make a fight publicly. You sort of talked about it, and you were like, you accepted it. And I think three years later or four years later, you would not have accepted it. And, and you decided on the Goodell thing to make a fight. And, and so two questions. One, how do you decide when it's worth it to make a fight like that? And two, how do you process events like getting fired and dealing with the public and personal ramifications of a show getting canceled or getting fired? I didn't get fired. I got
1: paid every cent of my contract. (laughs) They just they just decided uh, they didn't want me
0: to come to work for the last five months. But yeah, one way you just you deal with it is by lying to yourself about what happened. So that's one. they paid you out and fired you. Yes. No, they said they weren't renewing my contract. And at that point, I was like,
1: well, great. Well, let's have a staring contest for the next five months then. But um, now the thing, um, getting suspended, I think, was actually the, the that that was the hardest of all of those, just from a surprised standpoint. Uh, the Obama one was at that point I had so much equity in Skipper and Walsh. I love those guys. And I did feel like, you know, I, I didn't want, I didn't want to fuck them over, but what ended up happening was I ended up having a lot of, I, I ended up acting out behind the scenes a little bit. I was really bad. It, a whole bunch of stuff. A lot of stuff was changing behind the scenes editorially at the time. And, you know, jokes and just different things getting taken out of columns. So we're not even telling me and things like that. And it, and, and, and that was when I basically took two months off and um to to finish my book, but really to just take two months off. And I think we all agreed like this is gonna blow up if you just go finish your book before right. this ends badly. So we figured that out. I think you know, from 09 to thirteen was fantastic. And I still feel like that is I'm really proud of everything we did all the way from 09 to 14 that 5-year run. Um I'm still uh, incredibly proud of everything we did. I really felt like I pushed them in a whole bunch of different great ways. I think they pushed me in a whole bunch of great ways and it was like it was like playing for like the the fucking you know late 90s Yankees or something. They had a ton of power and a ton of money and all that stuff. So with, when 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 I got suspended, that hurt the most because I just felt like I was killing it for them, you know. I felt like, and and what had happened was a pretty understandable mistake. We should have, we should have edited the the one piece of the pod. I should have said all the Goodell stuff. I don't know even why I said the ESPN stuff um, about daring them to threaten me. It, it's kind of incoherent. I was I was coming off a day where uh, I'd done that pod, and then Jalen and I did six straight hours of the Bill and Jalen NBA series. And it was just a fuck up. And I felt like I'd earned the benefit of the doubt to be like, Hey, I fucked up. Let me, let's fix this. And instead it, it, it became like, no, you're going to be punished for this. And I just felt like I, I've hit like 350 with 45 homers for you every year for the last five. Like, really? Like you're going to, now you're going to like publicly slap me on the wrist, try to embarrass me. And also like, what is this going to prove? Um, but even the suspension was one thing. When they took money from me, that that was that was uh, that one. I was like, "Wow, so you're gonna take money from me? All I've done is fucking kill it for you guys," and uh, and that that I couldn't get past it, I, and I was angry about it from that point on. And, and that was when I really started thinking about doing my own thing after that, really seriously, because I was. I like, mean, I that's when you I thought I'm gonna
0: move on. I'm gonna do something after Grantland. I'm gonna do my own thing.
1: I I didn't know for sure. But I also knew how I was wired as a person and whether I was gonna be able to get past that. And uh and I just in my head I was like, I gotta start figuring this might not work out. What's what's what should I do instead? I saw a lot of people coming at me too, trying to offer, Hey, you should do this, you should do that. Well, and yeah, by that point you that. were
0: like a player. I mean, you know, unfortunately like a bunch of financials. Everyone knows what everybody earns now, but I'm not going to talk about the specifics of that. But even by then you were earning like low level pro athlete money, you know, at a certain point there. And were you worried that, were, were you at all concerned that if you played it wrong, that could go away and you would end up, you know, having a couple of these amazing years and it would go away? Or did you know, all right, I can still steer this and they're underestimating or undervaluing who they're dealing with?
1: No, I, I, I knew I had other options and I also don't think they were undervaluing me. It, it was more of a, it, it just got weird. It really did. Like I, I, I think um, for whatever reason, those last couple of years, like anytime we had any sort of anything, it would become, it would end up on, you know, a sports blog or, or the sports business journal or whatever. And, and. Well, how did that feel it, to it, you? Art?
0: I gotta, how did that, without saying the specifics, cause I, I don't want to say the sp- specifics, but. How did that feel to you when these, these – because you haven't really ever talked about this. When, when a sort of mini industry, a cottage industry broke out, and there's now more than one website, you know, one that's no longer around, but more than one website where they basically made their names by – these are clearly people who got into this because of you, and then made their names by kind of taking shots at you and stuff, and, and by trying to uh, cover you in a way. And there's no way you could have anticipated that. I don't think. No, the shots. I I totally anticipated that because I was in
1: that position in the nineties. I took shots at everybody. I think what what I didn't anticipate was, um, you know, like from somebody like Skipper's perspective, the the kind of the where to put your political chips, you know, and the feeling I think internally by like 2013 14 was that like me and skipper were just boys and and uh and he was in the bag for me and and i got away with things other people didn't did it uh, i got away with things other people couldn't get away with and my attitude was like yeah you're right because i'm i'm doing better than all of you (laughs) like i should i should be treated differently um and i don't mean that like in a in a you know like Ego way it was just like I'm do I'm working harder than all of you. I'm doing more than you. Like, yeah, I'm kind of a special case. And if and if I haven't proved that I care about the company and all the stuff I'm doing and that I'm passionate about every single thing I'm I'm trying to do to make ESPN better and to come up with shit for us, like if I still have to prove that at this point, like what the fuck? Um and and I guess I I don't know. I was just I was gonna say like now I look at it, especially as somebody who's in charge of more people and I and I see it way more from the skipper side now. Like I do feel like I I could have made it easier in a couple different ways and you know especially the Goodell podcast. I I w- will never regret what I said about Goodell, but why did I say the thing about ESPN? Like the, the skipper had been good to me. I wish I hadn't said that. Um, but for the most part, what what I didn't realize and what I was really naive about was you know grantland was grantland was not a runaway success but it was very respected and it was very good 30 for 30 was uh, crushed it for them and at some point people in the company you know they they're going to get they they're going to try to start shit and they're going to be like all right well that guy's in the way or you know how can i how can i undermine this and it's a very political company it has a lot of mid-level managers And, and honestly, the mid-level managers are the ones that have the most power there. The people that kind of underneath the guy, they're the ones like somebody like Skipper, he's got 8,000 employees. He can't keep track of anything. He's got to trust the people underneath him. And those people can kind of shape what he thinks about anything, whatever he wants. Skipper and I... We're like, we're back. We're friends again. No, I and heard the podcast
0: was great. I was so happy yeah. when he was on the podcast. We've
1: had honest conversations about like, fuck, you know, that was really stupid. I wish we had talked because it was a really unique situation and it kind of went sideways.
0: And did, did you feel like, by the way, you know, there's that great John Wooden quote, which is uh, where he says, I'll treat everybody fairly, but I won't treat everybody the same. And that's what he talked about. He told his teams that I'll treat everyone fairly, but I won't treat everyone the same. And so that's really what you were saying, right? Is that you should have been treated like Jabbar because you were putting up those numbers.
1: Well, it was little stuff. It was like the last, you know, we, we, on the print side, ESPN magazine, ESPN.com got really competitive with Grantland. And we had a stretch like the last year I was there where they just didn't promote Grantland pieces. And on the ESPN NBA page, They were promoting all the ESPN people over the Grantland people because their attitude was, well, you have your own site anyway. And our attitude was, we have the best stable of NBA people ever, ever assembled, ever. And you go back and you look at all the people we had in 2014. It is the all-time murderer's row of NBA writers anybody has ever had and we're like, we can't even lead the ESPN NBA page. Like, what the fuck is this? Why are we
0: even attached to ESPN? The the fact that I got to write uh like six or seven NBA pieces for you then was amazing to me. I loved being a part of that.
1: We had it, we had the all time murderers row, and they knew it. And instead of being like, wow, this is this is great, I can't believe we have so many good basketball voices. Zach Lowe has a piece today. Let's lead with them. And the irony of it was. As soon as they cut Grantland out, what did they do? They made Zach the prominent NBA writer. Like, yeah, guess what? That should have happened two years earlier, you know? And so it was stuff like that. And the politics of it, I really started to take personally. And I, I in retrospect, I wish I hadn't, but I'm competitive. And I, I just felt like people were causing trouble and they were in my way in ways that now, I think if at this point in my life, I think there were much better ways to handle it. And I, I wish there were things, angry emails I had, I sent and phone calls I had. I'm just like, man, why did I care that much? Like, yeah, I was already, we, we were winning with everything we we're doing. Why did I want to, why did I want everything to be perfect? It's never going to be perfect, but I really wanted it to be perfect.
0: Don't you still act that way though? Don't you still want it to be perfect? Like, do, do you think you'd act differently now? Like, I know, you know that, but cause you and I were talking about this once on the, with, with Levine and, and, you know, we we're having that conversation. Of, I, I say I try not to let anger be the thing that motivates me anymore. And you and Levine were both like, that's ah, a pretty good motivator. And I was like, yeah, but I don't think it's like it burns as clean anymore. And and both you and Dave were like, I haven't found anything that burns quite that effectively. So, I mean, where are you on that now? Yeah, I'm still that way. I, I'm not going to lie. i am half Italian. Um,
1: <laughs> right. But no, I'm I'm saying more, you know. And I, and I thought about this a lot when um, debating whether to do the Spotify thing or not. And Spotify is an incredible company. I, I'm not, I swear this is going to be an infomercial. It, it had a lot of similarities to what ESPN was like in the late 2000s, where they have a ton of resources, a ton of money, a great infrastructure, and, and they're kind of a one-on-one you know like in audio they have a chance to own audio and potentially and potentially be more than that and to be a company that grows as like we started out we owned audio and then we became this 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 and this and they the more I studied them and researched them they really reminded me of Disney in the in the mid 80s when Eisner took over and Eisner was looking at what Disney and was like well why don't we do this what if we bought a TV network what if what if we blew out films? What if we bought Miramax? And he just kind of kept pushing them. I honestly feel like Spotify is wired that way. We we weren't we weren't uh, we never hired a banker. We weren't trying to sell. I just really like them, and and I look at them as a big company that's similar to ESPN, and how to navigate them. I feel like I'm so much smarter about how to do that than I was at ESPN. Ultimately, I was really naive in a lot of the politics. I just. Didn't see it, didn't get it. I was in LA. I wasn't in it any day. I didn't understand the concept of putting time in with different people, um, phone time, making people feel like they're included. My attitude was like, fuck everybody. We're, we're doing be- the best stuff at ESPN. And if you don't believe me, you're against me. It's, funny, and that's so it's
0: fucking f- stupid. But it feels like you had like, the fuck you money attitude before you had the fuck you money. Now that you have fuck you money, you're saying you don't really have that attitude as much anymore.
1: Yeah, but it's not about the money though. It's about how you succeed. If like if I'm going to be at ESPN when they're at their peak, uh, my goal is to try to do the best stuff. I mean, like we created Thirty for Thirty when I was there. That thing's going to be on until I'm dead. Um, yes. I that's that's the stuff that that uh, that I give a shit about. Like the whole process of how we came up with Thirty for Thirty, worked on it, shaped it into what it was, um, cultivated it, made the first thirty. And then they try to kill it if we fought for it to come back on so we could do the second one. We added the shorts, all of that stuff. Like, I I care so much more about that than anything else. The fact that we created something and watered it like a plant until it became something. So I I think at Spotify, we have a chance.
0: And you're still feeling as fired up, like, because, you know, when someone does make a deal like you made, it is easy to sort of, because you've obviously been very successful for a long time, but this is a different level situation. You're... Uh, you're not finding yourself sort of like, well, that's done now. I can just move on. Like you're as engaged and as, as focused on building this thing. No, I think they were, they were probably worried about that when
1: we were talking about the sale, like what happens? Are you still going to give a shit? And the, like my inner circle and the, the people that have worked with me the longest, like, I'm just never going to change. I I am who I am. I'm on, if I'm on a vacation, I'm going to end up doing stuff. And you're going to get a text from me randomly at 11:45 at night. Cause I thought of an idea and I'm going to be up at six 15 and
0: I, I, I don't know how else to be. And maybe that's, that there's something wrong with that. I don't know. No, I mean, that's what part of why you got that. What's why you are, but can you talk a little bit about sort of like how you made yourself able to not be bothered by, you said, yeah, I expected people to take shots at me, but, but there, you know, I uh, to me as your as a as your friend and as somebody who loves what you do, I have felt sometimes that it's been, you know, the sports writing world is a very jealous and bitter world at times, and yeah, but I don't I don't care about that though. I, I never,
1: I I don't look at that stuff and it's never bothered me. It did it bother me when I was like thirty two and I'm like, why are these people so mad that I have a sports column? Like, yeah, it was like, what the hell? I don't care about that stuff now, and and and. and to say that I don't read that stuff, like I, I can't emphasize that strongly enough. I don't care, because I think if you succeed to a certain level, and there's not a backlash, then that probably means you weren't successful. You know, it's like that. It's always going to happen. It doesn't matter who you are. Nobody has one hundred percent approval rating. And the 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 more stuff you do, the more people are going to be like, "Ah, fuck that guy," you know. And that's just the way it is. I don't. You can't think about it.
0: And is that how you... Does that make sense? Thought, yeah, no, that makes sense. Look, I read every review and I don't care. I too, the only ones that bug me is um, there are a couple of reviews where somebody reviewed uh, an early movie and they didn't like it. And then 10 years later, writing about something else, they, they reference the first movie and they say like, that was a great movie. And I'm like, look, dude, if you can't even go back and look at what you said originally, go. but, but basically I'm like you, I, it's their job. They can do whatever they want. I, I don't let it. I don't let it affect me though yeah. the shots at me are not nearly as personal as the shots at you because of the way you put yourself in your columns and because of the way in which your, your brand, your personal brand kind of overhangs the whole thing in a way that mine. Does.
1: Yeah. But here's the thing though, criticism sometimes brings the best out of people, you know? And I, I always looked at it that way. It, it, you, you watch the Michael Jordan doc, like some of his best games come after he
0: felt like he was slighted in some way or whatever. So I, I, So I had this question written down. Do you ever miss being an underdog? Can you still gin up that emotion that like you're an underdog? Can you still make yourself feel that way?
1: No, because I'm not an underdog. I I think what's what gets me excited is the same thing that got me excited you know, going down, going backwards, like when we made 30 for 30 and when we did Grantland and when I was creating my TV show, which didn't work, I still love the process of it. I learned a lot of things about it when we did the ringer, you know, it was me and Sean and Mallory and Julia and Chris. And we were in the same house that I'm doing this podcast right now, this little pool house in the back of my house, planning out the site for three months. And then we rented out a house on, uh, off of Franklin that, We call it the Taft House. We were there for, I don't know, another two months just trying to figure out the site, what we wanted it to be, how it's going to be different from Grantland. Um, You end up, you have like a million jokes during that process. I'm sure it's not much different than, I'm sure for you and Dave, like creating billions and realizing it had a chance to be something is so much better than actually working on season three of Billions. Like the creation part. Is still the, always going to be the best part. And I'm never going to get tired of that. I'm just not.
0: Yeah. I, well, you know, the, the, making the show, because like each time you get to write an episode, I'll say writing the episodes is still amazing to me and shoot, making them because, you know, you're able to kind of have a version of that process each time where it's like, what's the season going to be? And then having to solve that problem is I'm still super, Dave and I are still super. But that's, but, but that's a good example. Every
1: season, you're creating a new billion season. And if- the 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 summer or the spring when you're in that process and you're like ah fuck billion season seven i'm out of ideas what about you dave yeah this sucks let's uh let's have (laughs) axe let's give him have we given him cancer yet no yeah axe has it now let's give him cancer okay cool all right tell the writers like you'll never get to that point. You would rather not do the show. I would. we would not
0: do the show if we got to that point. 100% cuz we still love it. No, we still love writing for these people and and telling these stories. I want to touch on this this thing of you being a you said a couple times like, "Hey, I now understand the other side of it." I'm one of those people who like if I'm walking down the street in a car is it and we're at an intersection, like if I'm the guy walking, I I can't get pissed at the car for wanting to go because I remember what it's like being in the car and you're annoyed that the guy comes in front of you. So, like, I'm overly, in certain spots like that, overly empathetic to the other side of it. But, like, because you were so rebellious and so determined to get your way as an employee, how do you, like, like you said very fast, like, hey, I would be annoyed at that 24-year-old kid trying to get, get his way but I would imagine if you rec- like you did recognize a bunch of these young people as superstars and you've grown them, like Mallory, like Rem, who then you let go to his other vision. But like you have found people and sort of tried to bring them up and nurture them. Isn't that a big part of what you want to do? Yeah.
1: I, and that was one of the biggest parts of uh, The Ringer, certainly. I think at Grantland, um, it was just smaller. So the relationships were probably easier to maintain. We we had, even at our height, I think we had 47 people plus five or six uh, interns or, you know, part-timers, things like that. And I look back at that and, and that was one of the reasons I was getting so upset behind the scenes because it wasn't sustainable. I, f- I felt like Grantland had a chance to be great, you know, and I wanted it to grow and I wanted to have like, Somebody who was our head of social media. I wanted to have a podcast department that wasn't one person and stuff like that. And you were there, you were doing a podcast with us. We you knew all the people we had. We had three. We had three people for all of our audio and video and no, and everything. they wouldn't even let
0: you take advertising. You couldn't take advertising money. You couldn't make money on yeah, podcasts it, then.
1: Yeah, and then they would say, Well, you're the site's breaking even, so we can't really add headcount. That's you know, and I'm like, the site's only breaking even because you don't know how to sell it. So Um, you know, I think, I think we, we ended up with a smaller kind of site slash mini company and it was also a different time too. But, you know, I felt like we found everybody. I was probably, you know, involved with every hire we had at that point. And, uh, the connection was just different now that this company's bigger. I'm also the owner, which... You know, I think I gradually came to realize it's just you're just going to be looked at differently. I, at Grantland, I ran the site, but I was still working for ESPN. And I, I think when you actually own something, it's probably that that dynamic's always going to be a little bit off. But I think we've been able to find some, you know, some really good talent. I'm really proud of. Do you made work it. on
0: the management piece, Bill? Do you work on like what it means to be a decent boss? Do you talk to general managers of teams or president? Do you do you? Do you try to figure out best practices in that in that area or do you just go by your gut?
1: No, I, I think it's trial and error. And I, I think the best thing I've probably gotten at or better at in the last 10 years is just hiring because when we were starting Grantland. I had no idea how to hire. When I say I had no idea, I had no idea. I did, how was I going to know? And you're just like, oh, that person seems good. And I think now- Especially like one of the things I learned is the inner circle, you have to have like your, whether it's two people, four people, five, Yes. and you got to be all aligned. You got to be able to have tough conversations with each other. And usually if everybody's all in on somebody for whatever reason, that's always a great, a better sign than one person. But I'll still have my moments where if I love a certain somebody or a certain idea, like I'm going to trust myself at this point that it's a good idea and we should do it.
0: And then how do you deal with, so when you, when you when your television show got canceled, the HBO show, after you just made yeah. this deal with them, and it was high profile, and it was in a point of transition for you, and all the haters got to laugh at you, how do you manage, this is for people, like I'll say one of the biggest things listeners to this podcast talk to me about is like the 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 fear of creating something and it they bring it up all the time you know if i try this thing and it fails and i'm getting laughed at i'm not i don't think i'm strong enough to deal with that so how are you like can you just talk a little bit about what it actually just for a second like what it as a human being what that felt like and then how you dealt with it over the days and weeks afterwards
1: i mean i've talked about it before it's it's ultimately you're going to have to fail a couple of times and what you learn from it is what's going to determine the next few years. You know, it's like, why didn't that work? Um, I feel like even though that show didn't work, I would do it again. I learned a ton of things from it. And, you know, some of the stuff I would share, there were other ones I would keep to myself, but, um, you know, there's always a reason why things don't work. And there's always a reason why things work.
0: Do you go to that analytical place right away as opposed to an emotional place? This is important for people. Like, did you not have two days of just feeling sad and like telling your wife that, like you felt like a loser like most people would? Like, or were you able to just go like, nope, okay, I learned, I'm moving. Like, I, that, that feels almost impossible. No, no. No, it was, it was,
1: it's way worse than that. It was way more than a couple of days. The thing you feel bad about is when you have a TV show, and by the way, most TV shows fail. Um, so a lot of people have been in this position is you feel like you let everybody down, like, especially people who they were so fired up that they got this writer's job or this person, this person who was a producer. And it's like, it's these people kind of trusted you. They put their life in your hands a little bit. And all of a sudden the show got canceled and it was, you know, it's a lot of fault to be passed around, but at the most is going to be on you. And you're like, oh um what what can i learn from this and how do i throw myself into the ringer and try to make that really successful like that's all i can do at this point
0: right you throw yourself into your podcast and then and the, growing the 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 business and 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 like um finding a way to just put that thing in the rearview mirror um as a as a learning lesson yeah but you know though the the
1: funny thing is it was a bad idea it like Ultimately, I was thinking my podcast is really successful. Podcasts in general are taking off. I, I really truly believe this, and I'm making a big bet. Even with the ringer, this company we're building, I believe podcasts can help fund all the stuff we want to do. The the long form interview, podcasts are proving that there's a place for this, so it should work on TV. And fundamentally, it was just wrong. And it doesn't matter who the host was. Nobody wants to watch long form TV show interview shows because they you could do more in a podcast. They're just they're more malleable. You can listen to them on your own terms. You don't necessarily need to see the person. Podcasts are just better for it. So I think podcasts, I'm thinking that podcasts would make a show like this have a more likely chance to succeed. And actually podcasts are the reason that there's no way it should succeed regardless of who the host is.
0: Podcasts are much better. I agree because podcasts, you get to have them in your head in an imaginary way, which tie, you, you develop a different kind of relationship because you're not looking at them, I think, um, with the people. And I, that's something I, I wanted to ask you about. How, how does not, not just becoming famous, but how is becoming so, like I was thinking about part of the thing you were saying about your column and being 30 and 50, is like when you were 32 and writing your column, your biggest fans were like 15 to, to your age, to 35 or whatever, right? All of us were around the same age and into it. And now you have those kids who grew up with you, and then there's new groups of 15-year-olds listening to your podcast and 14-year-olds listening to your podcast. And how has this, uh, the way you kind of live in people's imaginations, like they have a real relationship with you, the way you did with those, then the way I did with those sports writers, How has that affected you? Is it something that you still dig? Is it strange for you? Have you completely synthesized it now? You know, when you were at a game and someone comes up to you, they're not coming up to you like a regular famous person. They're coming up to you as like someone who has helped them think through the world in a way. And, and how does that affect you? It doesn't. Cause, cause
1: I, I honestly don't feel like it's any different than if they came up to me when I was, you know, a bartender. Like people, people are always really nice. I, I, I don't know. I, I, it doesn't, it's just kind of been the way it's been the last 20 years. I don't really think about it that way. I think if it's somebody like, uh, you know, like somebody who gets to the point that like Kimmel's at or something, I think that's when it gets a little different. You know, I still feel like I'm relatively anonymous. The only time when I was on countdown, I think I kind of underestimated how many people watch the NBA and that was the first time when I noticed, you know, like in the airport, like the TSA agents and shit like that, like, Hey man, how's Jalen and stuff like that. I'm like, Oh, you know, and you're just, especially when you're in the airport, you're in your own little world, right? You're just like in a fog trying to get to where you need to go, get a cup of coffee and you're not pr- kind of prepared to be friendly. Um, that, so it's a little stuff like that, but it's in terms of like people
0: coming up, like all oh, that stuff's fine. And, and the fact that like they think they know you so intimately from like listening to you, uh, do they know you? Do, how close is like the public version of you, do you think, to who you really are?
1: I don't know. I, I would say the podcast, it's pretty hard to lie on a podcast. It's pretty hard to not be authentic when you're talking. When Russell and I are talking about basketball for two and a half hours on a Sunday night. It's kind of hard to do that as a character like you 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 kind of are who you are and I, I think that's one of the reasons people like podcasts so much because I think the connection's a little bit different uh especially how they consume it where you know, like people are reading my column in the office in like two thousand and four and you know they're they're sneaking it at work. the boss walks away and they're putting on the different screen to try to read half the mailbag or they're reading it on the John or wherever and I think with a podcast, it's the connection is just so much deeper, you know, and I think um, and I, I honestly, it's kind of replaced the column for me because I, I feel like uh, I, I, I can get a lot of the stuff done that I like to do in podcasts that I used to like to do in my column.
0: Yeah, no, it is deeper. And and I, I will say when people come up to, to me, right, my podcast is a 10th as big as yours or not, whatever. When people come up to me, they they. Um, they definitely feel like they know me really well. And then I say, I have to, sometimes I will say, like if they have a real conversation, like you do, but I don't know, you know, it's not, there's not a mutuality exactly because I don't really know you, but you do kind of know me because you've heard me speak for hours. Um, and like- Yeah, the reality is, well, we, we've
1: both been in this situation. The, the meeting is always going to be um, disappointing for the other person. Cause I, I remember I met Roger Angel once who was one of my favorite writers and who's somehow still alive. And I went to a book signing of his in like 94, 95 and I waited till the end and there was a circle around him, And, um, and I was just like, really wanted to tell him how much, how much his writing meant to me. Cause he was honestly like one of my favorite six, seven writers, which is weird cause our styles are nothing alike, but, um, so then I finally got my turn. I brought my book. I asked him to sign it. I was like, I just, you just, your writing really just means an incredible amount to me. And he's like, thank you. And then kind of go to the next person. And it's fine. Cause it was really, I just kind of wanted him to know. I didn't, I wasn't really looking for anything back, but um, so I get it. I've been on the other side of it. So you're never going to be able to match what it means to the other person.
0: Right. You can't quite match what it means to the other person. No, it's true. You try, uh, you try your best. Like when, when people come up to you and they're like, you know, run a runner, I remember the first time I saw it.
1: I, I just, just feel that's, what? That's there?
0: that's that that feels. Uh, do you want me to get into the particulars of the Spotify deal now? Cause I mean, I have them all. I could go <laughs> right there. I could go live. Oh, well, you brought up my TV show. I could go dial to bring a one compliment. I could do anything you want. I um, there's been some erroneous
1: reports. By the way, I liked Runner Runner. Fuck everybody. It's a solid cable movie. No,
0: Wesley, wrote, yeah. Wesley did a great review where he said, Wesley understood what was right and wrong about it on your site, and I remembered that. Though, a good review on Grantland at the time when I was like a, an honor. I mean, it's a great, honestly, it is super fun for me that I'm associated with these sites of yours, no matter what, always, and sort of an honorary person around them. It's awesome. Um, and I was a Grantland person. Yeah, you really are. You. Yeah, you're kind of you i don't even know what the sports comparison
1: would be. You—you got to You're on the team, but you—you you don't have your own locker. You, no, you it's gotta, true. <laughs> yes, my friend Nathan Nathan Hubbard is like that too. My friend who um, used to run Ticketmaster, and he's popped on pods a bunch of times, and he always says he's the, an unpaid ringer intern. But you're definitely—you're an unpaid Grantland ringer intern.
0: I am. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I'm a part of it. Um, yeah, and and uh, Godfather Two thing. If anyone listening to this hasn't heard us. Simmons and me talking about Godfather 2 on the um, rewatchables. You got to go. I I think it's like uh, top three rewatchables seems to be the consensus, uh, the consensus opinion. So why is basket, just as we're getting toward the end here, I love the Book of Basketball podcast. It's the best. It's it's just, it's so pure. And I just, why do you think, I know you've thought about this a lot and you've written about it, but, as we're missing sports now, as the NBA season got truncated or delayed or whatever happened, why is basketball so personal to you, do you think? What is it about basketball that you see yourself in in a different way than any of these other games? I definitely understand it the best. I've been to
1: more basketball games than any other games. Um, I have the best history of it in my head where... I could watch the current stuff and relate it to things that have happened in the past and things like that. And, um, I, I still fit and you know, I played, I wasn't great, but you know, I played for a long time and, and really came to appreciate the camaraderie of five people just kind of clicking for an hour and a half or two hours, things like that. And, uh, and it's still surprising to me. It's a game that baseball has really been unable to evolve. You know, and figure out what does baseball look like in 2020. Um, football has evolved in a way that you know uh, it's much more safety oriented. It's more touch football I don't think the product is as good. Uh, we still love it. Hockey way less physical. Um, soccer is probably the closest to basketball, where it really hasn't changed that much. But I, I love that basketball continues to evolve and that the players get to evolve and their relationship with with fans and like I think of the guys that have come in the league the last 12 years and for the most part great guys you know really good role models well put together um they're from all these different countries they come into the league that, as like adults and uh and I just really love the league and I, and I was happy that I, I was able to play even like a tiny role in, in following it and chronicling it and writing about it. So, um, so to have it just disappear like it has, and you know, there's way worse things in the world right now, but, um, but I I think even like hitting mid April and you're just in that mode of masters, then NBA playoffs and then round two and then Kentucky Derby and boxing and you know, how, how big sports is in our day-to-day life and to have it yanked away, it, it sucks. I really miss it.
0: No, we were talking about this. Amy, my my wife, was talking about how, the, the you know, how this, the, basically the loss of sports and why it's hitting us all so hard. What? Why do you think it hits us so hard? Because it knocked us out of a routine.
1: We're just used to it. And, uh, and...
0: But what else? what is it? But deeper than that. Come on. But what is it? It's not just a routine. I mean, why do they matter so much? You've spent 25 years.
1: Oh, you mean like... I thought you meant just like day to day.
0: But I'm saying even all of it, though. I'm saying like, so they get taken away. And it is one of the... In all this stuff, like one of the things people keep talking about is missing sports. Like when I said the PGA was actually going to play, I'm so fucking excited about it.
1: Yeah, life's just more boring without sports. I Honestly, that's my answer. It's just not as... Not as exciting day to day. It's like oh, you know, you, you you seven o'clock on a on a Thursday night, and it's and you're going oh okay. It's true. Uh, it's true. I can't argue with you.
0: I'd just, say Ro- Roger Angel. Roger Angel would give a more poetic answer. Uh, you got to admit.
1: Well, I mean, no, we go big picture, and it's like the being in a crowd. I think you know, I I'm, I really miss that part of it, and and the unpredictability, and you know. I, look, there's 7,000 reasons for it. But I, I think fundamentally what I was surprised by was how tied I was to the calendar and how much the calendar kind of influenced whatever my week was going to be like. You know, it's like, oh, April 8th, Masters. Oh, I know what I'm doing this weekend. And now it's like, now I don't, now what am I doing this weekend? I guess I'm- I'm be so more. glad
0: I went that, that year, two years ago when you were there too. And yeah. Text. Almost got to see each other, but the timing didn't work, but I'm so glad that I got to go. Um, uh, you know, I realized when you mentioned soccer, Your your chronicling of Tottenham is like your version of the Sopranos Pine Barrens episode. It just I know it's never. That's the Russians. The Tottenham Hotspurs are the Russians in the Pine Barrens for you. That's what that. Well, you know, you know
1: what happened. We had a second kid. That was it. Once I just kind of lost. I lost Saturdays. That was it. But your first kid is like this great soccer player. It wasn't that. It was. You know, when you have your first kid, it's like a torn ACL. And you have the second kid, it's like a torn Achilles and you can still get up and down the court, but you're not the same. As a sports fan, when you have no kids, you're just you're at 100%. You're going to be able to see everything. It's like, "Oh, I'm going to get into Tottenham Hotspur this year." It's like, "Yeah, I'm actually going to watch them on Saturday." And then you actually have kids, it's like, "Oh yeah, I can't watch the Premier League today. I've I've got to like take my kid to a playground."
0: The the columns I do wish you were writing. I wish we got a couple of columns like the way you would write about your dog, not with the sad outcome about your kids, because it's obvious, like from social media, from Instagram, how much you care about them and how what a kick you get out of them. And uh, how do you think, as a, a last thing, like how do you think having kids changed you?
1: I I think it just mellows you out. In a lot of ways, you, you, it just puts different things in perspective. I think it definitely changed my um my thoughts on um you know like I look at the situation my daughter's in now with soccer and and now like US soccer just shut down the development academy but then they're trying to the MLS is like well we'll step in we we created this league and it's just for boys and the the uh the the amount of sexism with youth sports and college sports and all that stuff that was something that I probably would have made fun of the other way 15 years ago. And now I'm the opposite. Like, I'm I absolutely outraged by some of this stuff. Even my daughter, she played high school for her soccer team. And, you know, she was on varsity. And the boys varsity always got better times. They got better uniforms. They had better, uh, better practice times. And it was like, what year is this? What's happening? Did so, you step
0: in at all? Did you step in and try to correct it?
1: I thought about it. I guess mentioning it on your podcast, maybe that'll help. That'll help some.
0: And are you a good sports dad on the sidelines or are you a dick?
1: No, I, I'm really good actually now. I, I think for a while I wasn't um, early on. It, you you kind of have to, it's like what, uh, it's like what Bill Murray said about Chevy chase. When, when you become famous, you have about two years of being an asshole. If you don't snap out of it, you're just an asshole. I think the same goes for being a sports parent. You're, you're probably you're gonna be an asshole for a year, or you're gonna be you just care too much. It's your kid, it, you know. It's it. you just. It's like having all four of your teams at once. You lose your mind, and then eventually, at some point, you've got to mellow out.
0: And I, I think fortunately, I did. All right. Well, that's a perfect place to end. Did we miss anything? Was there anything you wanted me to talk about that we didn't talk about? No, I have to go. So this is a perfect ending. This was fun though. Bill Simmons you can see you can find Bill everywhere but don't try to at him he really doesn't read the at responses or he doesn't respond to them on Twitter his Instagram is great he has the best podcast going uh the ringer rules uh there's a possibility I'll be doing uh an adjunct podcast for the ringer uh oh yeah about billions and um yes thanks man go have a great rest of the day